This is Guns and Butter. When they were going to do the bailout, um, you know, there's seven, eight hundred billion dollar bailouts to the bank because of the housing bubble crisis and and the subprime mortgage loans defaulting. Uh, the part of the message to Congress is if you don't do this, uh, so part of the warning was we're going to have civil unrest in the cities and have to declare martial law. So part of the creation of Homeland Security as a command structure for the police departments all over the country. We've seen Operation Falcon, the you know the federal local cops organized nationally operations of mass arrests. Part of that has been kind of this inevitable possibility that we would have unrest and extremely difficult economic times are potentially possible here, and we have a police state in the making that is ready to deal with that. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Peter Phillips and Mickey Huff. Today's show censored 2011. Peter Phillips is Professor of Sociology at Sonoma State University, Director Emeritus of Project Censored, and co-editor with Mickey Huff of Project Censored's new Censored 2011. Mickey Huff is the new Director of Project Censored and an Associate Professor of History at Diablo Valley College. Censored 2011 covers the top 25 censored news stories of the past year. The 25 runners-up, Junk Food News, The Truth Emergency, and Project Censored International, with an introduction by investigative journalist Christina Borgeson. I caught up with Peter Phillips and Mickey Huff at Sonoma State University at the launch of the new book. Welcome, Peter Phillips and Mickey Huff. Well, thanks very much for having us on board here. Yeah, thank you very much, Bonnie. It's great to be here today for our book launch. Oh, well, wonderful to have you. You are also going to be featured in The Guardian. Tell me about that. Well, today, the San Francisco Bay Guardian will be front-paging Project Censored again after after decades of doing this. They are the lead newspaper for us in the release of the stories. Uh, corporate media doesn't, doesn't cover us, so it's great to have um, independent media, the San Francisco Bay Guardian, weeklies all over the country. My understanding from the writer is that there's over 20 weeklies now that have signed up to run the story. So we will see that all our stories, the top 25 most censored stories of the year, Uh, covered in cities all over the United States, and then from there it goes worldwide. Now your Censored 2011 has been published. If people want to get the new book, how do they do that? Well, it's going to be in bookstores all all over the country, but uh, Project Censored website, www.projectcensored.org, is probably the easiest way to do that, and you can just order online, and um, we will uh, send you a book in the mail. And it's nice to do that with us because that helps support the project, keeps the students doing the research, um, and that's how we maintain ourselves and have so for 35 years. In addition to uh, projectcensored.org, you have another website now too, don't you? Well, we have a censored blog, so we have writers and bloggers that are posting material on a daily basis. Um, We have a validated news site, which is where our 33 campuses, now worldwide, we have universities in Spain, in Ecuador, in Chile, in in Argentina, uh, throughout the United States and Canada, that classes are doing what Project Censored here at Sonoma State did for, you know, 35 years. Those classes all over the world are investigating independent media, um, having professors look at the stories to verify that the stories are accurate and true, and they're posting those stories year-round. 
So the validated news site on projectcensor.org is a listing of those stories that are coming from universities everywhere. Those are the nominated stories for next year's book. And we have the archives there for Project Censored and, and the Daily News. And now, now we have 36 news feeds from, or RSS feeds from the independent media all over the world. So Al Jazeera English, the BBC, the Christian Science Monitor, all of that is online at Project Censored. So that's where our students read their daily news um, instead of corporate media or the New York Times. So are you telling me then that the public at large, if they go on these websites, can actually follow the stories as they're being developed by Project Censored? Absolutely. This is year-round postings, and the stories, all the ones that are in our book this year, were posted on our, our website as validated news stories six, nine months a year ago. Well, that's a terrific public service. Wow. It's, it's a great public service, and, and it's, an, it's another way of saying to corporate media, hey, you, you want a heads up, take a look. These are stories that have been out there in independent media. They've been validated by college professors as, as accurate and true. And um, here's, a, here's a tip of something that maybe we think you ought to cover. Uh, hopefully, eventually, it'll lead in that direction where some corporate media will be so embarrassed that uh, they may start to look at some of this. But... Uh, um, right now, they seem to be primarily uh, just wanting to entertain us, and there's a whole lot of top-down propaganda. Corporate media, we mean, are the big corporations, and they are locked into the military. They're locked into the State Department, and uh, so we're not getting the whole truth in, in the United States or the world, for that matter. And so when we say truth emergency, we really mean that. And our activities are having universities engage in truth-telling and story verification, because there's all kinds of news out there. The biggest problem for people on the Internet is they don't know what to trust. There's thousands of websites and all kinds of news, and people go, ah, it's just too much, I can't figure out, do I really believe this? We're going to help them validate and and know where they can go so that they can have trustworthy news. Uh, Peter, what is the URL again for the the validated stories in progress? Well, the easiest thing to do is just go to the Project Censored website. 10,000 people a day are doing that. Um, www.projectcensored.org, and then right there, there's this little buttons, validated news, daily news, the censored blog, all right there available, and uh, how to order the book, and um, we survive on book sales and donations from hundreds, thousands of people uh, worldwide. Mickey Huff, you're the new director of Project Censored. What can you tell us about this new book and the project that is different this year than in past years? Thanks, Bonnie. Thanks for having us uh, on today. This is the book launch for Censored 2011, and we, again, appreciate being on the program. What's different with Project Censored uh, coming in the last few years, actually, and then culminating in this year's book, is that we've expanded the project to include over 30 colleges and universities across uh, the United States and the world now. We're really becoming more of a Project Censored international, a good term of globalized people's media that fights against censorship, propaganda, and managed news. And in this year's book, we actually have three sections that really start to delineate the directions that we've been taking over the last few years. Um, This year, I took the lead on the book working with with Peter Phillips. We have the first section that has the traditional censored or undercovered, underreported stories and what's happened to previous ones, the great problem of junk food news and news abuse, triviality, the things that corporate news cover instead of actual news stories that you would find in the beginning of the book, Um, 
and Good News chapter, of course, this year by Ken Burroughs on good things and communitarian things that happen, very positive things for human development that go on all over all the time. But the corporate media ignore that too. They don't want to necessarily tell us some of the great things that are happening that could be very empowering to people's movements and, and social justice movements. Um, the second section of the book really reflects the direction that we've taken in the last couple of years, and that's toward an ongoing truth emergency, what we refer to as a, just simply a lack of purity in news. Um, there, are, uh, there are so many things that are reported that are going on in the world that, that ca- pull the curtain back on the power elite and the power structure and the, uh, those that manufacture the propaganda uh, to deceive the public, in, particularly in free societies where this is uh, very harmful. Um, we call this this problem a truth, a literal truth emergency because we have a lot of access to information, but people don't know necessarily whom to trust. They don't really know always where to get information. And so we've really been merging this truth emergency problem with our validated independent news process, using colleges and universities, professors and students and so forth, and, and members of the community uh, to really create a people's media. And the final section, of course, highlights the whole Project Censored International idea, where we have authors writing about being the media, like with Dave Matheson. Uh, we have Concha Mateos, our uh, visiting scholar from Spain this past spring, writing about global media censorship problems. We have the Index on Censorship again this year. So, um, that's kind of the direction that we're taking overall. Mickey, have there been any attempts to censor Project Censored? Yeah, that's actually a really uh, interesting question because that has happened. I mean, we've, of course, had our detractors and people that um, – some people had claimed that, well, we, we, we don't really deal with censored stories because these are stories that are published. And, and particularly the ind- some of the independents um, that we republish their stories – I say, well, I published that. That story wasn't censored. But it really doesn't uh, address the actual meaning of modern media censorship. And that is that anything that interferes with the free flow of information in a society that's democratic and purports to have a free free press is a form of censorship. So we're really dealing here with censorship of degree, right? When you have people that can get on corporate radio, corporate television, corporate media, cable news, etc., and reach literally millions of people, you know, tens of millions of people, uh, billions of people, literally in global audiences, um, I mean – the fact that you have something published in, say, I don't know, the Nation magazine or something, which is great. But, I mean, what's the circulation of that magazine? I mean, granted, they get a lot of hits on the website and so forth. But what we're talking about is accessibility. We're talking about how many people are aware of the, the important issues that a lot of these independent journals and independent journalists run all of the time. So uh, we have had our you know detractors and critics, but we've also had uh, issues of censorship. Uh, one, actually, we talk about in the book this year in the Truth Emergency section – uh, both Peter and I had written op-ed pieces for a very long time for a variety of people. Peter certainly longer than uh, than myself um, with Minuteman Media, and it was taken over by a Washington think tank, a sort of a left-leaning, left-progressive think tank, the Institute for Policy Studies. And uh, so uh, Peter had been submitting op-eds according to contract, and uh, we had done some pieces together. One, you know, on global starvation and hunger, and another was on, of course, some on the foreign on foreign policy, the war issues, and so so forth. But we submitted one uh, this past spring, and it footed the bill. It was uh, with well within the parameters of the contract, and uh, this had never happened before. And Peter's been doing this for years, uh, over a decade, and I've been doing it for some time now. And we've, we've never had an op-ed piece that we were contracted to do rejected, outright rejected. And it wasn't just rejected because of some contractual issue or violation. Uh, we were actually told specifically from people at IPS that because we mentioned as part of a, a piece on state crimes against democracy 
uh, you know, Lance DeHaven Smith, David Ray Griffin talk about these problems, um, you know, like from Watergate to Iran-Contra and so forth. And of course, what we're suggesting is that the events of September 11th have all the trappings of a potential state crime against democracy. And so we mentioned the scientific studies done by Stephen Jones in the Open Chemical Physics Journal, and, and we included Richard Gage and the Architects and Engineers group, over 1,200 uh, professionals now saying that the, the story, the official story, and the official quote-unquote science just doesn't make sense and doesn't add up. I mean, it defies what we know about scientific methodology and so forth. And so Peter and I included those examples, academic research pieces, fully noted. And, you know, the, I footnoted this piece, and it was two pages of footnotes for a one-and-a-half-page article. So we were serious about it. And they, they literally told us that they were not going to publish anything that talked about 9-11. Um, and we were dumbfounded. You know, at first we were waiting for the laugh tracks to come up and everything to be like, oh, we're censoring Project Censored. Um, but no, they were deadly serious. They, um, they said, no, we're not going to, to run this and we will not run anything on 9-11. And um, so we had it, you know, we subsequently put it up on the web and global research on our own website and, you know, several sites picked it up. But the fact that there was a topic at the progressive IPS that just could not be discussed. And if you have a free press structure, there is no subject that cannot be discussed. So yes, the irony there is that Project Censored was censored. Did the Institute for Policy Studies give you a reason why they wouldn't publish anything on uh, 9-11? Uh, so one of the claims was that it was, um, it was a divisive issue. And I mean, that's rubbish. I mean, if, it's, it's, a divis- it's a divisive issue for sure, but it's contentious for a reason. And these are the very kind of subjects that in a free press structure, we ought to be ferreting out and having the debates. I mean, that's the purpose of a free press. And, you know, and here we are seeing with, you know, the good lefties, uh, right? And they're we're expecting, oh, they're going to want to do this. It's a power elite story. It's a story of mass potential propaganda and deception that gets us into two illegal wars, eviscerates constitutional liberties, bankrupts the society both economically and morally the world over. You'd think this is a huge thing to debate on the merits of science and fact, right? We were hard, concrete scientific reports and peer-reviewed journal articles and so on. And we're saying, what's, what's the deal with this? Why can't we talk about this? And they said, well, you're going to alienate readers in the heartland. I'm not kidding. Um, I'm not sure where this heartland is um, coming from the beltway of Washington, D.C., but that was literally a claim that was made. And, of course, our retort was, well, aren't these the very people that we want to try to reach with difficult stories? I mean, isn't it the role of a progressive left-leaning institute with social justice values to try to push some of the most difficult things in the heartland? I mean, aren't they trying to woo these people in some way, the populist uh, people of the heartland? Uh, But according to the people at IPS, the answer was no. So they didn't run it. And then when Peter submitted another piece the month later, they said, you're no, you're no longer writing for us. That is truly incredible that in a nation that supposedly has a free press, that something wouldn't be printed because it was considered divisive. Yeah, again, the irony, the paradox, uh, I mean, it, it's all just perplexing to us. And we, we did write about it. We, we thought long and hard about this, too. Even to add to the irony, we were literally invited to speak at the IPS headquarters in Washington, D.C. after they censored the piece. And we showed up there prepared to talk about what had happened and to talk about the piece. And we discovered that many of the people in the staff had no knowledge that this was ever done 
We passed the piece around to the people that were there. And uh, the consensus in the room was this should never have happened, that the piece should run and we should be talking about difficult issues and that organizations such as theirs should be spotlighting them. I mean they should be leading the charge um, in, in terms of like a quality muckraking style of reporting and, and, and academic studies and research and so forth. But again, it was a really odd thing for for us. And again, Project Censored was used to getting attacked and you know labeled and dismissed or ignored by the mainstream corporate media, certainly. Um, but getting censored was was a was an interesting phenomenon. Well, uh, even after you showed up in person, then did they change their policies toward Project Censored or not? No. Peter and I no longer write for IPS, formerly Minuteman. I'm speaking with Professor of Sociology, Dr. Peter Phillips, and Director of Project Censored, Mickey Huff. Today's show, Censored 2011. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, so, Mickey, of the uh, 25 top most censored stories of uh, your new Censored 2011, do you have a favorite? Um, you know, there, there are so many uh, stories this year, and they're, they're, they cross, uh, you know, really a diverse uh, spectrum. You know, we have, we have stories on, you know, the global plans to replace the dollar, our number one story this year, um, how the U.S. Defense Department is the worst polluter on the planet. This is something else that people don't often think about. You know, in fact, the two first stories have an interesting connection. Um, and, you know, we're talking about over 300,000 barrels of oil a day being used for the war machine, not including contractors. Um, so this is these are really serious problems. Internet privacy and and personal access are at risk. The problems of net neutrality. You know, these are all stories that we deal with. Problems with the H1N1 swine flu pandemic, where there was manipulated research and so forth to benefit drug companies and so on. You know, we have a story on healthcare restrictions costing thousands of lives in the United States. A story about how Cuba was providing the greatest medical aid to Haiti after the earthquake that none of the corporate media in the states bothered to want to mention. Um, but you know, in all of these stories, we include the problems that are ongoing with 9-11 research. So it's not just that's all we're dealing with, but we're one of the few organizations that seem to understand and at least have the courage to address there are factual known problems with the 9-11 Commission report, with the National Institute of Standards Technologies report, with the FEMA studies, particularly involving Building 7 in New York. Um, as well as all the other host of anomalies that came out through the, you know, the commission studies and so forth. But this year, there were several really major 9-11 related stories that the corporate media just did not deal with at all. One was, of course, the architects and engineers announcing they had over a thousand uh, supporters of professional ph- physicists, civil engineers, um, architects, and so on, signing on, saying that what happened in the official descriptions and official, uh, quote-unquote, scientific uh, conclusions based on National Institute of Standards and Technologies are impossible. Uh, they don't add up. They don't work. And in fact, the government's own studies admit in many cases that they didn't look at all the data or they deny certain facts and so forth. So you can't really even have a debate about it. But they announced that in San Francisco in February, and Sean Hamilton covered that story. And um, he was basically the uh, one of the very few people that, that covered it. I know you, uh, of course, had involvement in that because it's something that you, you do as a, as a real journalist. Um, 
But there wasn't a there was just it was as if it didn't happen. You know, here you have an example where there's over a thousand professional experts in a certain field saying not oh yes we absolutely are certain that this happened, but what they're saying is we are absolutely certain that what the government is telling us did not happen, um, and we need to really take a look at this. And for some reason that just strikes controversy. Um, but you know, there's a lot of people in this country, right, left, center, all over the map, that know that there are real problems with 9/11 issues. It's a really broad area of of research. And, and political interest. Um, but at any rate, there were other stories related to 9-11. Specifically, um, Daniel Tenser, uh, how the Obama staffer um, wanted to reinitiate COINTELPRO, the cognitive infiltration of 9-11 conspiracy uh, groups as they're labeled. Again, conspiracy theorist is a label to detract people and take away. There's a big difference between conspiracy theorists and people that are conspiracy analysts because conspiracies happen all the time. And this is a story, of course, about Cass Sunset the Harvard lawyer that Obama appointed to a, a specific post in his administration where Sunstein's calls to infiltrate private citizen groups, specifically playing to the very concerns of 9-11 activists and the concerns that they may be targeted or infiltrated, tried on some trumped-up terrorist or criminal charges where they may not get a fair public hearing. So this is, again, a climate of fear and intimidation. And historically, this goes back through COINTELPRO days, and there's, this is long documented. This is something that totally happened, and this came out in the church committee hearings in the 1970s, and it's been going on. And now this person is publicly, Sunstein, is publicly calling to return to these days as if the government should be involved in directly violating the free speech rights of the citizenry. This is pretty amazing. And that story just seems to, again, just float out there and doesn't really get dealt with a whole lot. It's, it's again, a very problematic story. The other is by Sue Reed, the other 9-11 related story. And of course, a recent book came out about this. And the question, this was published in the Daily Mail, um, was has Osama bin Laden been dead for seven years and are the U.S. and Britain covering it up to continue the war on terror? Now, even if that sounds like an outlandish proposal, um, th these are things that are based on fairly solid evidence. And it's certainly something, given how much time and attention is spent on invoking Osama bin Laden as the boogeyman justification for the current so-called war on terror um, and you know, two illegal invasions and occupations and the destru utter destruction of two countries and the decimation of over a million Iraqi people and so forth. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, anytime an election comes around, anytime somebody needs to point to a boogeyman, they point to Osama bin Laden. But you know, if you go to and look at some of the research here, it's likely that this person has been dead for seven years or more. Um, Fox News, get this, even actually reported that bin Laden had died in uh, late 2001. It was actually on Fox News. Apparently, they don't read their own transcripts either. Um, but you know, this has been going on. And of course, the many sightings and so forth of this person, it's almost like Bigfoot or something. The new sighting of bin Laden in his videotape. And it's like, you know, the guy looks totally different and different facial features and so on. And again, you know, why am I the person that sounds like some paranoid conspiracy theorist or lunatic just because because I'm noticing the facts that are in front and I'm willing to accept that maybe this is a possibility. Um, how that makes someone dangerous, I guess you'd have to really go then and look at the whole power elite structure of our government and how they may really not want people to understand or know the truth behind many things that are going on, which of course creates what Peter and I have referred to as a great truth emergency. So I think these are the things that we should be talking about, matter-of-factly, transparently, dismissing things that have no factual merit. But you know, again, the role of the free press should be looking at these issues and given that 9-11 is, is basically the excuse that's given for almost everything that's gone on almost the past nine years here, right, nine years this week. Um, I think we owe it to ourselves as a society to really take seriously these stories. 
And Peter, Mickey mentioned and talked a bit about uh, state crimes against democracy. Don't you have a whole table in the book outlining all of these? Lance DeHaven Smith's article, Beyond Conspiracy Theory, Patterns of High Crime in America, was published by Sage Publications. So this is an academic journal publication. And there's been a number of scholars who have been following this concept, a lot of them in public administration. And it's a whole look at how, how public the government is. And so if there's incidences inside of government or inside of government and corporations that are in violation of the law and people are planning this and doing it, that's a conspiracy. But because the word conspiracy has been so mislabeled, it calls these state crimes against democracy, against transparency, against understanding what our government is doing, which is what we you know, believe we have or we like to think we have. And so, you know, the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald, um, the, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, um, the assassination of Robert Kennedy, the burglary of Dan Ellsberg's office, the attempted assassination on George Wallace, the Watergate break-in, um, the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, the Iran-Contra issues, the, uh, the presidential election in Florida in 2000, where all the, all the um, felons, ex-felons were disenfranchised, or people who weren't ex-felons, but they had a name like somebody. And also um, the building collapse, Building 7, the uh, attempted assassinations of, of Dachel and Leahy with the Antrax, uh, the assassination of Senator Wilson. Some of these are proven, some are not, but they're all suspected state crimes against democracy in a variety of ways. Certainly we know now that the Gulf of Tonkin didn't happen. The North Vietnamese did not attack a U.S. destroyer. And, uh, and Johnson and McNamara at the time knew that, but allowed the press to say, oh, yes, we've been attacked, and, and that escalated the war. Historically, that problem goes back quite a ways. I mean, and then the manufacturing of public support for these kind of wars based on false pretenses. This is, in fact, more the rule than the exception. Starting, you know, the Mexican-American War in 1846 fought over a trumped-up border dispute that President Polk claimed. I mean, even Abraham Lincoln in the Congress at the time, you know, said it was a complete scam. You know, he said, he said show me the spot where this happened, you know, and, and he was nicknamed Spotty Lincoln. He seemed to recover from that politically since he was elected to president later on. But uh, the 1898 Spanish American War, where the Hearst newspapers claimed and McKinley administration claimed that the uh, USS Maine was attacked by the Spanish in the Havana Harbor. Uh, another bunk story. Uh, it was not attacked by the Spanish in the Havana Harbor, but that was used as a pretext for America to take control of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. World War One events, you know, of like of the Lusitania that were known about in advance. Um, the, you know, the Zimmerman telegram, the notes of provocation, the erection of a whole propaganda agency in World War One to propagandize and dupe the public into supporting a war by demonizing others and spreading lies about things that were happening. World War II event of Pearl Harbor, another uh, major problem. You know, the book by Robert Stinnett, Day of Deceit, and all these government documents that have come out over the years that show that Pearl Harbor was known about in advance. It was allowed to happen so that there could be public opinion swayed, you know, to go to war against the Nazis and the Japanese. Uh, again, you could argue that that was, you know, justified on some other levels if you like, but that doesn't change the reality or the factual reality of how things were known about it. Pearl Harbor and allowed to happen to sway public opinion. I mean, that's like a manufactured kind of event. These are replicated later on. You know, th- this is in where you get into the Gulf of Tonkin. You know, these things are either manufactured or allowed to happen. So, given this kind of a track record in history, for us to ignore 
that when events like Watergate or events like the Iran Contra or events like 9/11 come uh, you know across our paths to not look into the possibility of this level of deception is not just sloppy thinking it's it's failing to live up to our principles as citizens in a purportedly free society and as a, an anti-censorship organization project censored thinks that these are issues that need to be looked at most Right, and you're saying then that all of these war provocation incidents would be included under the banner of state crimes against democracy. Yes. And things like the break-in into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, you know, to try to get records to discredit him, and the things at that level are, are state crimes as well. I'm speaking with Professor of Sociology Dr. Peter Phillips and Director of Project Censored, Mickey Huff. Today's show... Censored 2011. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, Peter, of the new 25 top censored stories in the new Censored 2011, what are some of your favorites? You've got a lot of stories there. We have the 25 stories and then another 25 runner-ups that are mentioned, but uh, we were choosing from 324 stories that have been posted from different universities last year. And so sometimes my favorites don't always even get in the book. But um, of the list that we've got, I particularly, number one, I think is really important. The collapse of the U.S. dollar as a global currency and how that would impact working people in this country is a significant story. And it's literally inevitable. It's, it's going to happen at some point. It may happen slowly or it may happen more quickly. But the dollar being the reserve currency, particularly for buying oil worldwide, is under reconsideration by Russia, China, Japan, um, India, and uh, the consideration is, is a UN currency or a trading for oil in yuan, Chinese yuan, or yen, or euros. And, um, you know, this has been in the works for quite a while. Saddam Hussein was the first country, Iraq, to start selling oil in euros, and you see what happened to him. Um, the first thing we did when we got there, take over the oil ministry and converted Iraq oil sales back to dollars. Um, trillions and trillions of dollars are out there in the world. Um, the Chinese have a trillion, the Saudis have a trillion, and the balance of trade isn't strong enough that they can spend all that money buying products from the U.S. What it ends up being, they buy treasury bonds. And those treasury bonds are what finance our war, you know, because we're doing deficit spending to create this war, hundreds of billions of dollars, and that costs us these treasury bonds. Now, if nobody's going to buy the treasury bonds, and when we start creating money, like just printing money, that devaluates the dollar automatically, the more you just put out there. And so we're going to see a surplus of dollars in the world that will undermine the value of the dollar in terms of what it will buy. So if you're going to go buy products in Walmart, and the dollar value has gone down, you could see a doubling of, of the prices, most of the products from China, in, in, in six months. So it could really decrease the standard of living for the bottom 80% of us in this country who have essentially only 8% of the wealth. 90% of the wealth is concentrated in the top 20% of the people, half of that in the top 1% of the people. Um, and so the 80% of us who are working class, that live paycheck to paycheck, maybe making a mortgage, maybe not, um, could be literally devastated economically. Um, it's semi 
inevitable, that, that that's going to happen in some way. So we're seeing this as our number one story in the censored book this year, and this is coming from from uh, Chris Hedges, the American Empire is bankrupt, Michael Hudson, the de-dollarization, dismantling America's financial military empire. Um, it also includes stories about how in South America um, a new currency is emerging, the Sucre, among the Bolivarian revolution countries, so that would be Ecuador, Venezuela, Bolivia, Argentina, and, and they're talking about a trade association with a new currency that they're going to use. Um, so we're seeing that worldwide. So the dominance of the dollar in terms of being the international currency of exchange for oil and a variety of other things is really being undermined, and that will clearly impact uh, living conditions for, for working people in the United States, uh, more likely sooner than later. And we perceive that as part of the difficulty. When they, when they were going to do the bailout, um, you know, there's seven $800 billion bailouts to the bank because of the housing bubble crisis, and, and the subprime mortgage loans defaulting. Uh, the part of the message to Congress is if you don't do this, uh, so part of the warning was we're going to have civil unrest in the cities and have to declare martial law. So part of the creation of homeland security as a command structure for the police departments all over the country, we've seen Operation Falcon, the, you know, the federal local cops organized nationally, operations of mass arrests, Part of that has been kind of this inevitable possibility that we would have unrest and extremely difficult economic times are potentially possible here, and we have a police state in the making that is ready to deal with that. Well, that's right. And this story, uh, number one, global plans to replace the dollar, this is an extremely important and very complex story. There are a lot of different aspects to it. The United States has been able, I understand, to dominate the world through the issuance of debt. And these dollars that are circulated back into the U.S. Treasury from uh, foreign central banks, as you pointed out, this finances uh, the wars that the United States is carrying out and that it's ironic that some of these countries that are actually financing these wars politically don't support them. That's... That's that's absolutely true. I mean, this is part of the American, U.S., NATO, military, industrial, media empire in the world. With, you know, a thousand U.S. bases, expanding NATO bases all over the world, the coalition of forces in Afghanistan now, the NATO forces that are there, is the largest coalition of forces ever put together. So you've got people from Sweden there symbolically, I mean, they're not a big big force, but this is the first time Sweden has, has been engaged in military activity in a couple hundred years. And you've got, you know, German troops there and military contingents from, from a variety of nations that are representing, with U.S.-led, of course, this protection of, of empire worldwide and a, a propaganda machine of public relations and news stories that go with that in terms of managing news worldwide as well. And that's a problem we see quite specifically. When we come up with these stories, it's not just the individual story that in itself that's significant. It's the truth emergency that the lack of coverage of these stories, and many hundreds more, leave a, an uneducated working class of people, not in the U.S., but in the world, in terms of what the powerful are doing. We don't know. And, 
And by not knowing, we lose our democratic capabilities of making changes. By not being informed of what the powerful are doing, having transparency, we lose democracy. And, and that's an extremely um, important message that, that we are on, really feel we're on target with in terms of building independent media and having universities validate news stories worldwide. Right. And to continue with story number one, global plans to replace the dollar, like you pointed out, if the dollar were replaced as the uh, global reserve currency, I guess there's no one currency right now that could replace it. But when and if that happens, like you pointed out, the living standards in the United States could be easily cut in half. And also part of the story that, that you mentioned that is so very important is the pricing of oil in dollars because that creates demand for dollars. And if that goes away, well, huh, it's going to be a different world that Americans are going to be living in. Yeah, it was three or four years ago. Iran was saying they were going to start selling oil in euros. And, um, you know, that's been part of the threat to Iran, even though they're saying it's their nuclear weapon threat. Well, that's, that, that's not real. I mean, their economic threat is far more real in terms of their capabilities. And, and in working in conjunction, with, they sell oil to China. And part of controlling China's economic growth is controlling oil in the world. That's the U.S. goal. I mean, Project for New American Century was writing that a decade ago, saying that China's our main economic threat. They are now number two world economy. But they're behind the U.S., but they're number two. They've exceeded European countries. So um, the Chinese are, are expanding and growing, but they don't have oil. So if we can control the world's oil, that, in a, in a sense, is a way of controlling Chinese growth and expansion. Many of these stories are multiple stories. So the global plan to replace the dollar is coming from six different sources and was researched not only at Sonoma State, but at Indian River State College in, in Florida, Diablo Valley College here as well. So you have different sets of professors and different sets of students pulling stories in that are related to this. But that brings in the South American story, it brings in the, the UN story, and it brings in this whole idea of the American empire is being financed by surplus dollars worldwide through treasury bonds in terms of the war expansion. So it's a combination of things. So as we expand with different universities worldwide, many of these stories, uh, the story number two, which is about the United States military, is the number one worst polluter in the planet. I mean, this came from six different sources as well. And it came from the University of Madrid. It came from Indian River, and it came from St. Cloud University. So all of these different campuses are seeing stories that identify how the U.S. military is creating more global warming gases, more pollution, heavy metals and depleted uranium, and, and toxics worldwide. They're exempt from environmental laws in the United States, EPA laws. And, and so the war becomes the agenda, and the environment is just pushed aside. And so we have long-term impacts. I mean, the, the birth defects for children in Fallujah now are, are one out of four children born there have a birth defect. And this is clearly related to the contamination as we destroyed that city and left depleted uranium everywhere. So this is a major story, but, but we see it kind of emerging as themes. The U.S. US polluting the world militarily 
is a theme that's coming from multiple sources. So it's not just one story. It's multiple universities, multiple authors, and stories that are coming together to lay this out. Well, Peter, um, it's very dramatic, the environmental impacts of uh, of the U.S. military, particularly in the war zones that they're bombing. But they're also producing pollution right here in the United States, aren't they? Of course, and they're exempt from the EPA laws, so yes, they can. And they'll they'll put out higher propaganda PR firms to put it out how green the Army's trying to be and all that kind of stuff, but it's baloney. It's just image. Literally, part of this story was the expansion uh, of the U.S. military presence on Guam. And this came from Guam. This came from people there, the indigenous people in Guam, who are faced with another 50,000 U.S. military people living on that island and militarizing it, you know, with, with billions of dollars of increased militarization as a sort of fortress island in the middle of, of, of the Pacific um, as, as one of our major bases. And, you know, and they don't like that. They don't want to see that. And, and the environmental impacts are severe. I'm speaking with Professor of Sociology, Dr. Peter Phillips, and Director of Project Censored, Mickey Huff. Today's show, Censored 2011. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, we've uh, we've touched on two of the uh, important 25 stories, but we've got a lot of stories. Um, here's a very important one, uh, number 20. Obama's charter school policies spread segregation and undermine unions. Now, this is the whole, what, movement to privatize the public school system? This is exa- that's exactly what's, what's happening. We see um, the charter school movement, which is now widely funded, um, hires teachers that aren't, generally aren't unionized. It pays them less. And it's a way of breaking some of the strongest remaining public unions in, in the country. And Obama's Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, came out of Chicago. Chicago has more charter schools than, than any, literally any other district anywhere. And they are also the most militarized of schools. So there's more junior ROTC programs and military recruitment and expansion of military presence in public schools and charter schools in Chicago than anywhere else. That, that is part of the agenda of, of the education department today is to, in, in a sense, we're breaking the back of public education in the country and trying to privatize it. And there's schools like Kaplan and some of these private schools are, are waiting there literally to take it over and buy up chains of schools that they can get um, federal funding for to become the deliverers of public education. And that, that we find very disturbing. It's certainly not covered very widely. And the schools in the United States are more segregated today than they were in the 1950s. And the charter schools are the most segregated schools of all. Now, sometimes there'll be a charter school and it's all minority. Sometimes there'll be a charter school and it's almost all white. These charter schools are able to do that kind of marketing and create that infrastructure, which increases racial segregation and and continues to build tensions in our society among among races. And this is de facto segregation, but the charter schools amplify that. They amplify that kind of of separation of the races. Now, 
Uh, in addition to destroying free public education, how do these charter schools work? Do you have to pay to go to a, a charter school? I know someone with a, a four-year-old, and he's uh, working hard to get this kid into a charter school, and uh, this is going to cost. And then the question is, is the education actually any better in these schools than the public schools? Charter schools invariably have better test scores than public schools. And part of the reason is they can cherry-pick their students. They can pick who they want to have come there. And, and additionally, and sometimes some will, will have parents contribute, and some are, in fact, um, paid through by the school district. But they're still independent. So that they don't, if they don't have unions, they can hire teachers at salaries. And with a surplus labor force of teachers, literally, in, in the country, you can get people cheaper than you would through a unionized public school system. Um, does it make it better? Not necessarily, not at all. But the whole child left behind ideology of, of how we're going to test and validate the kids are learning something is forcing teachers to teach to these tests instead of doing creative learning, creative learning processes in, in schools where children can explore and create and think and, and work together. It's a competitive process that teachers are, are trying to worry. And principals are in the same boat. If their school goes down in terms of its testing standards, their job's on the line. And, you know, and then schools that do well are supposedly can get bonuses. And that's how this whole charter system is being set up. And so the money for education is declining, and the money that's been coming from the federal government is primarily to promote charter school expansion. And then isn't there another important aspect of this story that it's a way to break teachers' unions? Well, that's a big part of it. I mean, that is the big part of it from a teacher's perspective. I mean, we're down to 10% unionized in this nation when we used to be 40 and you know, and those unions are still under attack as, as being, you know, two plush of jobs. I mean, the problem is that wages for working people have gone down for 40 years. So they're struggling. Where it's been protected, if you had a union, you were protected. Now you're under attack. Like if you're, if you're making over 50000 a year, you're considered too wealthy or something. And, you know, in, in many places in the world, that's, that, that isn't a survival wage in terms of buying a house or anything else. Right, so it sounds like teachers are going to become low-paid, sort of a lower-class kind of a job. Well, they in some ways already are. And the turnover rate in, in school teachers now is, is very high. So we keep turning out school teachers that don't stay. They'll stay three or four years and they're gone. They'll go to take another job, do something else. And part of it is the atmosphere inside the schools now where the testing has become the primary goal is to get these kids to perform well on tests and improve the standards inside of their dis- And it doesn't mean improve learning. It just means kids can test better. And so and if you're running a school district that has a lot of low-income families or a lot of kids coming in with limited English skills, you're not going to test well, and you're, and you're, and you're invariably not going to stay. Now, story number four, ICE, well, ICE is Immigration and Custom Enforcement. ICE operates secret detention and courts. Secret courts? Well, not only are there secret courts, but we now know, and this was in The Nation magazine, Jacqueline Stevens wrote three major articles, and then also Human Rights Watch did, did a review, too, uh, that were published in The Nation magazine last year. Um, nowhere else. I mean, it's quite, it's quite amazing, but Immigration Customs Enforcement, ICE, uh, has a vast network of 300 detention facilities located in every state in the country. Now, there's 186 of these that are unlisted, unmarked, subfield offices. It could be a warehouse in the middle of a 
um, suburban area. It's a holding center. And so if someone is picked up as undocumented, they're brought to this warehouse and just put there. These are not jails. They're just enclosed rooms. And there's no showers, beds. And they could be there for a couple of days. And they literally disappeared off the street. So if you're undocumented, um, you can be picked up, put in one of these detention centers, held until there's enough people to put you on an airplane, to fly you to Phoenix, you know, and then put you on a bus and take you to Nogales, which is how it works here in the Bay Area. So you'd be held in one of these centers and then manacled, handcuffed, taken to the airport, all, you know, 150, 200 people are put on an airplane, flown to Phoenix, you get a sandwich, then you're held there for a while, and then you go on a bus down to um, Nogales and dumped across the border. I mean, we deported you know, 400,000 people this year. And it's not a very pleasant process. And so you can have a right deportation trial. That means you could be held in one of these centers or one of the facilities for months waiting to, to see a judge. Your family may not know where you are. You may not have access to an attorney. You end up before a judge. These are not public hearings. So we're, we have this whole system for people who are undocumented. They haven't violated any laws. I mean, coming into the U.S., Walking across the border is is not illegal. So you're not an illegal alien. You are a undocumented person who is probably working under the table somewhere for very low wages. And there's millions of people, 11.5 million at this point in the U.S. So we have this human rights violations of these people in, in a very negative way. They can be picked up off the street. Um, held without trial, if they waive their rights to deportation process and they're just dumped across the border, and in many cases will end up coming back, if they're actually deported and they come back, then they're illegal. Then that's illegal. That is a violation of the law. But it's not just a violation to be here, living here. Most of the people who are undocumented came here legally. They came here on a student visa or a, a visitation thing, and it expired. They just stayed. And that's not illegal. Now, they can be deported, but they haven't committed any crimes. They may be working, paying taxes. In fact, it's $7 billion a year now um, paid into Social Security by people who are undocumented that they're never going to collect. And they're paying taxes. They're paying rent. They're taking care of their kids. Their kids can be born here. The kids can be citizens. And these are talking about human rights as human beings, humanitarian concerns, and yet we have this vast network of secret facilities to arrest people and, and to hold them in, in handcuffs, and they can get a sandwich in, in a 24-hour period with no sleep or anything. I mean, it's, it's cattle in trucks in, in, in many ways. Um, and if we allow that to happen, even to people who are undocumented, it can happen to any of us. And, and that's, that's a humanitarian civil rights issue that should be, should be openly talked about in our society. Because the president can declare any person um, an enemy of the state and your habeas corpus is suspended. So you could be held in one of these places, and, and, and anybody could. We have to expose this, talk about it, and, and really put humanitarian rights, human rights, on the agenda in a very big way. Now, Peter, uh, story number 22 is 1.2 billion people in India 
to be given biometric ID cards. Now, I've never heard of this. Yeah, this one was new, new to us. It was on Voice of America. It was in The Guardian in London. We didn't see it anywhere else in the country. But um, India is moving forward with trying to do biometric identification cards for 1.2 billion people. Now, this is part of the global empire agenda, is to try to get everybody identified, everybody, you got fingerprints, you can, you can do eyes, and to systematize and control mass populations. So biometric ID card is, is, is one way of doing that. There's going to be strong resistance inside of India, and there's strong resistance from a variety of different groups there that, that are not going to want to have this happen. So imposing this on, on the 1.2 billion people there it's a tremendous undertaking. It'll be very expensive. Um, and it's the brainchild of um, one of India's top software tycoons that, that think that they can make a lot of money off of it. And um, I think we're seeing that, that sort of a process being looked at across the world. And certainly here in the U.S., the idea of a national ID card, which in a sense our driver's license are. And we're moving in that direction as well. Could very well have biometric capabilities as well. So, so we're moving in that direction as part of the global big brother watching all the citizens agenda. And it's emerging in, in India as well. Have they decided to do this or is it just on the drawing board? This is, the, this is actually underway. And the next five years, the computer systems will have the details on 600 million people in, in They'll get half the population. It's going to cost them $3.5 billion, and, um, and then these 600 million Indians will receive 16-digit identity numbers by 2014. So that's the first phase of the project. So they are implementing this in, in, in a very serious way. Wow, I've never heard of that. Now, you've got um, a story number uh, 24, War Crimes of General Stanley McChrystal, who, of course, has just... Uh, been dismissed as uh, the head general in Afghanistan. Well, this is what he was doing before he was appointed by Obama to, to be in Afghanistan. And, and this comes from Seymour Hersh. This comes from Press TV. And Crystal was in charge of the Joint Special Operations Command, headed by him under Dick Cheney. And he'd remained for 33 years in, in the military. He did a lot of special operations. Now, these were black commando operation, Navy SEAL, Delta Forces, that could go into countries, not even tell the U.S. Embassy, assassinate targets, and then, and then leave. So they were involved in war crimes. They were in Iraq, and they ran a camp called Nama. And Crystal would go there and visit. And Nama was one of those hidden ghost facilities where severe torture occurred. And so this whole story is about not only Crystal's oversight of assassinations, torture in a very serious way that, that are war crimes in any, any country in, in the world, and that his involvement was there, and, and the story has come forward. It's, it's out there. Seymour Hurst was speaking at a global investigation journalism conference in Geneva in April of, of 2010. He's criticizing Barack Obama as alleged U.S. forces were engaged in battlefield executions. Now, the WikiLeaks has verified that, that we in fact have this, the Special Force Group 373 that's operating and has targeted people's names. They have 2,000 people's names. They've captured or killed 4,000 people. And these are people that they're at liberty to go and kill and assassinate. 
And in doing so, maybe they know somebody's in a house, so they'll pull in and drop a 500-pound bomb on the house, kill everybody in it. So the civilian casualties associated with this assassination teams are, are very much present. This was all over the London Guardian. It was all over the German papers. It was all over papers all over the world. New York Times had the WikiLeaks stuff. They had it ahead of everybody else. They gave it three lines. The Washington Post never even mentioned it. So this Special Forces Assassination 373, American people don't like to think of their government as out assassinating people around the world. But uh, we now have Special Forces operating in 75 countries supposedly killing terrorists using drones in Yemen and Africa and other places, Pakistan, closely interlocked with private mercenaries. So this is a far more different type of military operation, and McChrystal was certainly involved, um, than we've ever seen as far as uh, U.S. you know, civilian-run military. Peter Phillips, thank you very much. Well, it's been great talking about the Censored 2011 book, and this is a heck of a volume. This is 480 pages of facts, researched, a combined package of something that's unique and different and helps fight the truth emergency that we're dealing with and helps fight the propaganda that's coming from the corporate media and trying to control all of our lives. I've been speaking with Peter Phillips and Mickey Huff. Today's show has been Censored 2011. Peter Phillips is Professor of Sociology at Sonoma State University, Director Emeritus of Project Censored, and co-editor with Mickey Huff of Project Censored's new Censored 2011, the top 25 censored news stories of the past year. Mickey Huff is the new director of Project Censored and an associate professor of history at Diablo Valley College. Peter Phillips has completed several investigative research studies, including the Global Dominance Group, a study of bias in the Associated Press, U.S. electromagnetic weapons and human rights, and the left progressive media inside the propaganda model, among many other research studies. He co-authored Impeach the President, The Case Against Bush and Cheney. Peter Phillips is president of the Media Freedom Foundation, a nonprofit corporation to support First Amendment organizations and investigative research. Visit the Project Censored website at www.projectcensored.org. That's projectcensored.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments, order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G.
Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? You got me?